Well, they say that uh, necessity is the mother of all invention, and that's no less true for musical composition as it is for industry and entrepreneurship. Uh, Isaac Watts was a hymn writer for the Church of Scotland back in the 1700s. And at the time, the Church of Scotland was making this huge push uh, to take all 150 psalms and write them poetically and put them into their new hymnal that they were going to publish. Uh, so this was uh, uh, with, the, with the idea that the Church of Scotland believed that the only worship songs that you could sing in church uh, were to come from the Psalter, and any other songs that were written for the church would, would not be allowed. However, Watt saw this as very cumbersome and, and noticed that a lot of these pieces were, were not written very well, and they were very hard to sing. And uh, he also had a theological conflict with saying that uh, only the Psalms could be sung in church. Uh, he believed that you could take theological truths and, and, and write poetry about it and then put it into hymns and that God would be just as glorified in that. He also thought that if we're going to sing the Psalms, we ought to do so Christologically. And what that means is the, the Psalms were all written in the context uh, for pre-Christ uh, Jewish folks. And he was saying, you know, we should read the Psalms and, and look at the Psalms through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what that means uh, for us now. And so this notion got him into a little bit of trouble. He actually had an arch enemy whose name was Thomas Bradbury, who stepped up and accused Watts of trying to upstage King David, uh, saying to him, you are trying to be more important than King David by writing these words to your songs. And which Watts obviously thought it was crazy. Bradbury even mocked Watts's work. He called them whims instead of hymns. Um, but however, Watts's hymns, we still sing in the church today. Uh, songs like, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed. Songs like, At the Cross, and I Sing the Mighty Power of God. Uh, and, uh, Oh God, our help in ages past. And, and who can forget when I survey the wondrous cross. And... Perhaps the, the song that he made his mark in history uh, was not only a song that the church sings, but a song that um, the, the uh, secular world sings every Christmas as well. One hymn called Joy to the World. It was written in 1719. Uh, it's a summation of Watts' thoughts on Psalm 98 and Psalm 96, as well as uh, Genesis chapter 3. And the tune is often attributed to... Uh, to George Frederick Handel. However, Handel did not write the music to it per se. It was uh, actually uh, more than likely written by a guy named Lowell Mason, who was an avid fan of Handel's work and composed it in such a way that it, it sounds very, um, well, he got a handle on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, as we close out this series on uh, Christmas mixtape, uh, we're going to look at how Joy to the World serves the world both sacred and secular alike, uh, giving us a glimpse of what true joy is all about, where it's found, and why it's, it's better to receive than gold and silver. So let's look at three things today. The first is that we should grasp the universal nature of Christ's rule. Grasp the universal nature of Christ's rule. Uh, on Christmas Eve, just a few days ago, or a couple of days ago, we talked about how one of the fundamental identities by which God identifies himself by is that of Lord. It's hard to find any other topic or any other uh, attribute or title given to God in all of Scripture than that of Lord. 
And so uh, through uh, here we see it is, it is a royalty status. It's a term that is used in, for people that are in positions of authority and people who are in positions of rule. And in Wesley's hymn, he begins the, the song by singing, Joy to the world. So at Christmas, we're celebrating how joy had broken into uh, the world to give us the best possible news. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. This is not a birth announcement of some future king, of some geographical kingdom. Uh, this is not the birth announcement of the future secretary general of the United Nations. This is the Lord of heaven and earth, the one through whom all things were created and the one in whom all things hold together. It is this one whom your life Every single one of us and every single person in the world finds their purpose and meaning in this life of Jesus Christ. So it only makes sense that the entire cosmos, the entire universe would rejoice at the birth of this king. Watts puts it like this. Let earth receive her king. It's a summation of Psalm 96 in verses 10 through 13, which says... Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The Lord is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything celebrate. Um, then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. So we'll see in just a minute why it's such a big deal that, the, that this king came. But for now, let those words of Psalm 96 sink in. All of creation had been looking to him. His birth was the first fruits of redemption that not only his people, those who are part of the church would experience, but also all of creation itself. And so Watts writes, let heaven and nature sing. But the interesting thing is, is that while all of creation plainly shows that it is looking for the return of Jesus Christ to make all things new, many of us aren't. Many of us understand and recognize that something isn't right. But we figure it's going to resolve on its own or someone's going to come along and they'll know how to fix it. And both of those scenarios are rather ignorant. We can't fix these problems that exist in our world. We can put band-aids on them but it's just going to bleed right through the band-aid. It's like having a hole in your boat and taking a bucket and trying to throw all the water out of the boat, thinking you're actually doing something good for keeping the boat up for a while. It's inevitable. And so Watts here puts a command in the middle of the first verse that every one of us must consider. He says, let every heart Prepare him room. It's a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, a verse that looks forward to John the Baptist who in the wilderness would pave the way for Jesus Christ when it says, a voice crying 
out, that is John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. And so now John's voice echoes through the sands of time, and it is still ringing out even today. He wasn't calling a contractor to come and build a literal highway. He wasn't saying make a street, a literal street for him, but rather he is calling for a renovation of the heart. He is telling you and me to prepare a place in our hearts for the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And we make room in our hearts through repentance. And it is filled with faith. Christmas might be over, but the spirit of Christmas certainly is still alive and well. Have you recognized the universal reign of Jesus Christ? Have you realized and internalized that he is sovereign over every single atom, every single particle, every droplet of air that goes here in this world and every bit of space that is in our universe? He is sovereign over and have you opened your heart to the fact that though this, he has a, a cosmic reign in its scope, that he desires your heart and he desires your life. He lived a sinless life for you, died a death that you deserved. Three days later, he rose from the dead to provide a future hope. This is the goodness of that king. The question is, will you let him rule in your heart? And second of all, we need to enjoy the benefits of Christ's rule. See, it's one thing to, to understand that Christ reigns and rules. And it's, you know, one thing to make room for him in, his, in, in, in your life. But it's a whole other thing to enjoy the Lord and enjoy his benefits uh, it's the difference between tolerating something or, or going through the motions or, or fulfilling obligations to something and delighting in that thing. And when it comes to Christ's rule, he doesn't just want us to come as, as mere subjects in his kingdom. He wants us to be people who would delight in the king and wonder why he would choose us to be part of his kingdom. Watch gives us a really good reason to delight in his kingdom. In, in verse 3 of Joy to the World, he writes, No more let sin and sorrows grow. And it's here that we must recognize the difference between life before we knew Christ and life after we received him. Prior to knowing Christ, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 12, he says this, he says, At that time you were without Christ excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. And get this, without hope and without God in the world. If you don't have Jesus in your life, what are you hoping in? What do you think is going to be that thing that delivers you, the, the, the government? The United Nations, your 401k, your ingenuity, perhaps fate? 
When your world comes crashing down and you are in your final breaths here on earth, what can you possibly have in your possessions that is going to help you at that moment? Only Christ can deliver you and satisfy you now. And every single day into eternity, before we knew Christ, Paul tells us that we were spiritually dead. Again, in Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of the disobedient. Now here's a fact. Dead people don't raise themselves. I've talked to a lot of folks that work in ER, and I've not heard one story of someone that comes in, dead on arrival, that sits up, grabs those shocker things, puts some jelly on them, rubs them together, tells everybody to clear, and shocks themselves and comes back to life. It's an outside force that needs to do it. And without Christ, Paul says that we are spiritually dead. We're unable to revive ourselves. Before knowing Christ, the Bible is clear that we are children of Satan. In John chapter 8, Jesus is, is having a, a conversation with the Pharisees. And he says this, Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You were of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. In kingdom terms, Paul is very clear that before Christ... We were in the kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1.13 tells us that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and has delivered us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. You notice there's no middle ground here. There's no shadow land. There's no in-between place here. Without Christ, there is no hope. This has been the pattern since Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve took of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree which God had forbidden to them to eat. And because they did that, God had, had cursed them and everyone else that would come from them. It's the only plausible understanding of why there are so many issues in our lives and in our world. It's the reason why you have relational, relationship struggles. It's why you woke up this morning with, with pain in your joints. It's why you can't escape your past. It's why you have tears in your eyes, pain in your heart, and baggage in your past. Sin has ruined everything. But in Christ bondage to that sin, the slavery to sin is broken. 
We're no longer stuck in our sin and our, our misery. We've been forgiven and we've been, we've been freed and can now have the ability to resist and live life the way that we were created to, to live it. Revelation chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 tells us this. It's a doxology. It says, To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest who is God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So did you get that? Because Christ's blood was shed for us, we have redemption. And so therefore, uh, Watts writes, uh, no more let sins and sorrows grow because, in, because Christ has lived because he's died and resurrected and ascended for us. We ought not anymore to let sin, uh, to make sin and sorrows have dominion over us. There's coming a day in which these things won't even be a reality anymore. He comes to make his blessings flow. And he's done it in his person and his work. But it doesn't just affect you, you and me. Watts writes, nor thorns infest the ground. In Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us how the entire uh, universe feels the effect of sin and looks for the day when Jesus is going to make it all right and redeem it. He writes this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will also be free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know now that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And we see this, don't we? Just a couple weeks ago, we were, the state of Minnesota was under the threat of tornadoes in the middle of December. Looking at a potential blizzard tonight. The Philippines were hit with a super typhoon. Earthquakes happening very frequently. See, floods that ravage so many places year after year. People in, in the southeast having to evacuate almost annually because of hurricanes coming their direction. Our lives aren't right. But nature certainly isn't either. But Jesus has promised that all of this will be made right when he, when he comes back. As he's closing out his vision, the Apostle John writes this in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. He says, Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And he also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true making everything new. We are groaning. All creation is groaning. The universe is groaning, but he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It's coming a day when it will be no more. Third, we need to be subject to Christ's rule. Be subject to Jesus' rule. 
with everything that we've talked about so far, it's not hard to imagine that some of us are going to resist. We don't like hearing about this, and as a final plea, Watts concludes his hymn by saying that he rules the world in truth and grace. Can't say that about many rulers. This may be the most political statement that I've said all year, and it's December 26th, and so that's probably a good thing. But you can look in the history books, you can watch the news, you can listen to the debates. And there never will be a competent leader in this world. They are all fallible. Many are corrupt. Most are in it for themselves. The established systems do more harm than good. There is none that we can say in this world that he rules in truth and grace. You're just not going to find it except in Jesus. But when we open up the Bible, we see page after page about the one who is uniquely qualified. We find the one who has the experience. And we see his resume on, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, when it says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forever. And the greatness of his rule is in stark contrast to what we see in the world today. Watts continues to, to write, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. The day is coming in which his perfect rule and reign will show his glories of his righteousness, the wonders of his love. There's coming a day in which all leaders, from the local school board members to the state government, to the national government, to the international government, where they will all come and recognize Jesus as the perfect ruler Monarchs and dictators will proclaim Christ as Lord. His rule is good and right, and he is worthy to be praised. So as we close out this song in the season, the question that, that is most pressing uh, to me and, and I, would, I would give to you is given the fact that one day you are going to be bowing the knee to Jesus, Will you put it off? 
and have a much harder time with it when it comes? Or will you joyfully begin worshiping him now? His reign and rule is shown most chiefly in the church and those that are part of it. Find the freedom and the hope that is in this king. You know, when Jesus appeared in the flesh, it began a, a crash course with the sinful ways of the world. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in him. And the entire cosmos looks to him in his return. Will you? Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let's pray.